All right, welcome listeners. Thanks for joining in for episode six. Today it's Paul and Dan with you all. Dan, I have a question for you, sir. For the rest of your life, if you, during an evaluation, had to choose between performing objective measures and no special tests ever again, or special tests only and no objective measure, for the rest of your career, what would you pick? Paul, that's an interesting question, and I, I don't know that either one of those is really realistic, but definitely worth a discussion. Welcome to Therapists in Motion, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. Like we said, welcome again to episode six. I just want to take a moment to thank everyone that has been listening, downloading the podcast. Thank you for your feedback. Thank you for your questions. And please remember, reach out to us, therapistsinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Anything you have as far as topics, discussion, questions, we'd love to hear your thoughts and we'd love to hear your questions and expand upon them and, and learn and dialogue with you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been, we've had some really good feedback so far. Um, I think our statistics are up to roughly 700 downloads in a couple weeks. So to everybody who has downloaded, thank you and sharing with your friends and colleagues. Um, we hope to continue to release some great content and, um, we've got a episode coming up with Gary Gray and a few more interesting topics that Paul and I have planned out and some special guests. So, um, with further ado, let's dive into our topic. Cool. So like we said, kind of a ridiculous question, not actually realistic in any capacity. But I want to talk a little bit about the purpose of special tests, how they function, and how in schools I feel like we often become a little too reliant upon them, or they become such a hammer home piece of the objective evaluation, we forget sometimes what our profession is truly uh, experts at and what we really have a knowledge base of. Now again, before I get into this, I want to throw a couple things out there that talk about why special tests are very important and why we should never give them up in any capacity. One, first and foremost, we need to be communicating with referring providers, other MDs. Even if they're not referred and we refer out, we need to make sure we're all speaking the same language. And quite frankly, if I have a patient come in and talk about what their scapular dyskinesis is and their aberrant movements, that might not mean a whole lot to your typical primary care physician. If I have them come in and say they have potentially a partial tear of the rotator cuff, that's going to mean a whole lot to your primary care physician. We need to be able to communicate our findings with other health professionals in an effective manner. Two, there is certainly a benefit still to having a special test and understanding what the patient's actual medical diagnosis might be. For example, let's talk about the shoulder because there's a plethora of special tests there and it's a common one for cluster signs. If I can differentiate via special testing between internal impingement and external impingement, as far as patient pain complaints go, as far as objective deficits for movement dysfunction, they could present very similarly. But they're gonna have different, different, definite differences as far as what are successful motions, what are some relieving, what might be some challenges. So it will help me differentiate, and more importantly, individualize the patient's plan of care. And three, we need to make sure that when we look at a patient coming in, our profession is pushing direct access we need to be prepared for direct access. And if that is the case, we should be able to screen out if a patient has, for example, a rotator cuff tear or not. Yes, that we can probably figure out by looking and talking to the patient, but it is always good to have the special test or for other things such as a hip labral tear 
Ottawa ankle rules. There are definitely needs for these things to exist so we can say, you know what, I think there's things we can work on, but we need to clear something first and we need to send you to A, B, or C to make sure that is taken care of before we launch into things and don't miss anything big and nasty and scary because we've all heard those horror stories that exist out there. Yeah, and I think that's really important that, you know, that the three things that we hit on as far as you know, speaking to other medical professionals and sharing a common language and understanding, you know, relating back to one of our previous to- topics about, well, this is the structure that's involved. And that's important for, for therapists to understand the structure that is involved so that they can better understand and apply, well, how does that structure impact their function? And, you know, there are some therapists out there that say, well, that structure may not impact their function, but the special test is still positive. And then the special test may be positive and you know what structure is involved, and it very may, very well may impact their function. So I think that that's a really important differentiation there. And then you know, speaking to direct access, I think that's that's hugely important to continue to have therapists at the table in the discussion in the medical realm because we do have a good knowledge of the neuromusculoskeletal system, second to orthopedic surgeon or surgeons and our ability to to understand and diagnose a structural issue um, and not diagnose the level that potentially an orthopod may do because they have extensively more training than we do but we at least can can replicate their test probably better than most internists out there unless they've done a sports medicine fellowship no agreed thank you dan very very correct so i want to go out and say let's take a external impingement for the shoulder that's a very common presentation that comes through let's go ahead and say we we do an objective evaluation, we've got our positive nears, we've got our positive Hawkins-Kennedy, uh, we've got some painful resisted external rotation, uh, but they're testing negative to other things. So we've got a nice little cluster, we've got our clump of three, we're feeling pretty good about our diagnosis. And this is a common presentation I see very often. And an eval I might see from a number of therapists might have range of motion, manual muscle testing scores, joint mobility at the glenohumeral joint, and some soft tissue restrictions and tenderness. Pretty typical evaluation. Dan, I want to ask you, if you had that information, that information alone, could you treat this patient? Probably. Yeah, I I would agree completely. I don't see why you couldn't treat that patient. There's no reason not to. Um, What would you do with this patient? Mm, Well, based on that information alone, you know, I'd probably do some TheraBand-resisted external rotation some progressive resisted exercises. Exactly, I mean, exactly what I thought you would say. The typical answer of the typical things we would see on your cookie cutter, your rotator cuff protocol, partial tear, internal impingement, external impingement, etc. So you're telling me I'm a cookie cutter therapist? <laughs> Obviously, no. <laughs> Having worked with you long enough, I can guarantee everyone listening, Dan is not a cookie cutter therapist. Half the time I look over and go, what in the name of whatever is Dan doing right now? <laughs> but this is really cool and I want to learn about it and find out what's happening. Likewise, because something likewise. fascinating can happen. Likewise. It's great to learn from each other there. <laughs> but it's something we fall into too easily. We have plenty of therapists that go through and they, they have the information, they go through a typical exercise routine. And how many doctors out there think that there is, or even patients for that matter, oh good, I have a rotator cuff tear via my MRI. Partial tear, not surgically uh, needing to be repaired. What exercises do I do? There's a lot of exercises you could do. Yes, I can give you the generic strengthening ones, and it will probably help many people out there, but is that really honing in? Is that really getting to the depth of the individual patient? Is that really going to take care of, I don't want to say 100%, because not everyone's going to respond favorably, but 100% of the people that you could get gains from, 
I certainly would say not. I certainly would say there's no way that's going to benefit for the individual. So let's dive a little bit deeper into the shoulder and talk about what a special test isn't going to evaluate for you. Again, I, I like the shoulder. It's a personal favorite joint of mine. It's such a mobile joint um, and it sacrifices a lot of structural stability in order to have said mobility. So when we look at the actual mechanics of the shoulder, for things to work, you have to have your AC joint mobility, your clavicular mobility, your SC joint mobility, your glenohumeral joint mobility, your scapula mobility, your thoracic mobility. I think we all get where I'm coming across here. <laughs> all of those joints I mentioned, they all have probably three, not probably, they do have three planes of motion. They all have their separate mobility for each plane. Not only do they have mobility requirements, they should be happening in a specific manner. We have that more central to peripheral progression. Those are the things I want to see in an evaluation. Those are the things that I can actually address. No special test can tell me that the AC joint doesn't have the appropriate clavicular posterior role that it needs, and that is causing some impingement because of the elevation that's going to compress that subacromial space. No special test is going to tell me that I am lacking the appropriate scapular upward rotation, or more importantly, maybe the appropriate scapular posterior tilt, as we're also forward head anteriorly rounded shoulders nowadays and with that position you're not going to have the posterior tilt that's required again to clear the subacromial space. You can see some of these things that's not hard to look at in evaluation. We can easily test them and address them but unless I actually look at it I can't get specific enough to treat that patient for that issue within their therapy session. Well and I think the other thing is is the therapists that are evaluating it in that manner they don't know how to document it. Correct. <laughs> Which is a completely different discussion on proper documentation yes. for our findings, but which I don't want to get on too far off the tangent. But I think that's where some people are like, well, how do I document that? And it is a great, great question. It's age old battle. Insurance versus physical therapy. How do we get paid? Yes, it would be great for me to talk about talk about scapular dyskinesis. And I should definitely document benefits and changes that I've seen. Ultimately, Insurance is still going to want manual muscle test score improvements, pain report changes, range of motion changes, joint mobility changes, and you should document them because you need to actually show that you're doing something that should have benefit and hence receive payment. But I'll take one step further. If we're going to show the skill that we have, the skill that we provide, differentiate our services, differentiate our different CPT code utilization, we should be able to show more than just TheraBand external rotation, TheraBand internal rotation, isometrics a series of row progressions, um, serratus punches against the wall, a lot of your typical things you see with the individual. We want to show what is the true point of the exercise, and there's an actual skill. A athletic trainer, a personal trainer, a number of different professions are perfectly capable of training an individual through exercises. They could take them through all of these exercises. There's no reason they could not do that. But what do us as physical therapists have to offer to the equation that is different than anyone else out there. And yes, of course there's an overlap. There should always be an overlap, but I want someone able to say, all right, I know the structure of a joint and I know how that joint should function. Can I look at all the mechanics that go into that joint, all the surrounding joints that impact the movement, the entire kinetic chain that impacts the picture, and how do I address that with the individual? Um, I have some friends that just finished their residency for medical school, and it was interesting. We were talking about the difference between research-based treatment uh, that was taught previously and what they're teaching now. Well, for a long time, we were very strong within the research and evidence-based practice. And now even medical schools are going more to the evidence-guided. They're appreciating the fact that 
evidence is awesome. We want to have a support. We want to have backing with evidence, but we can't rely upon that 100%. We need to be able to individualize things. And individualize means honing into that specific person, their specific presentation, and how they move as an individual. Yeah, and I think that's really important. And, and that goes back to our conversation that we had with, with Brent and Greg from IPA on evidence-informed yes. practitioners and how you know Greg quoted that, that study of that that, that therapist that said, well, in order to appropriately, you know, classify the cervical spine in a um, motor vehicle accident, in, in a motor vehicle Where accident that? with, with with a cluster signal, we would need what 1.2 million something around that ridiculous. Number. You know, a, a, just an unbelievable number that's not feasible and it couldn't ever be studied. You know, as I sit here and look at this, you know, this uh, clinical prediction rules book by by Glenn and. Wiseback that probably a lot of you are familiar with. I mean, the majority of these levels of evidence are three and four, so we're not even getting super high levels to support the findings that we have. And the thing that's interesting, especially going to clinical prediction rules, at least I always found fascinating, they're, they're nice, they have a benefit to them, again. Uh, it's nice to have something that's research-based and evidence-based, but here's the problem. How many of them are validated? Right. Well, last I checked, it's, it's one. The lumbar spine manipulation and then it's even interesting too to ask yourself well what's the goal of it i think we could have probably most therapists could tell you or at least at one point in the careers could tell you what is the clinical prediction rule for the lumbar spine manipulation um, but how many of them could actually tell you what is the goal or what is it measuring right well for those right. that are not aware of it it is measuring a change in the oswestry score of i believe 50 percent uh, over two weeks okay that, that's good how many people are comfortable with a change? I want a two-week change, that's awesome. That's a great time frame. But does that get my patient back to their activities? Right, More importantly, does that take them one step further? So if I have a patient that has internal impingement or external impingement, again, in the shoulder, one of the two, I want to not only get them back to their, their activities, but if they're a non-acute or non-traumatic onset, what was the chronic movement deficit that caused this in the first place? What actually happened? Otherwise, I'm gonna have that patient that's super pleased with my services see me because I got them better, then see me again in six months, then see me again in a year, and then another nine months because they keep hurting their shoulder because we've never actually corrected the movement deficit and dysfunction that caused the inefficient movement in the first place and continues to cause them to have- Right, so that special problems. test may continue to be positive but mm -hmm. not really paint that whole picture because they're creating this repetitive overuse injury or this degenerative wear and tear injury that we see so frequently and the special test is positive and then it's eventually negative or mostly negative and then it comes back because we never like you said addressed that underlying mechanical deficit at one of those most likely other joints, AC, SC, scapulothoracic, thoracic spine. And I don't know I don't know about you, Dan, but this is something I experienced early in my career. I had a number of patients that I had very good outcomes with. They were thrilled. We got them back to their activities. They had no more pain. That's most patients' goals. And when you ask them, what's your goal in physical therapy? Well, be pain-free or get back to my activity or whatever it is. And they loved me. And they asked me when they came back in six months. And they asked me again when they came back in another six months. And I very, very quickly realized that, all right, I am missing something in this equation because I am getting their knee better, but their knee keeps hurting again. And it's more than just, oh, sorry, you have osteoarthritis, too bad, so sad you're going to have to let you your life. Well, as I continued to grow in my own 
development, I realized, okay, I can't just strengthen gluteus medius. I have to actually look at the full mechanics of the hip. I have to look at the full mechanics of the foot so I can take care of this actual knee and not have them come back to me again. And if they do come back, as much as I don't want them to, hopefully it's something different and we can get them back to activities instead of continually addressing the same issue. And like you said very beautifully, the special test will tell me what's wrong with that one joint. It didn't tell me what mechanical deficit is happening across the entire picture. So I guess that then begs the question is, what, what's the purpose of therapy? So Dan, I ask you, what is your ultimate goal with your patient? To return them to, return them to their optimal level of function. And, and, you know, and I think that optimal level of function is something that often in our evaluations, we don't, we don't test the person at the appropriate level. Because in school, and I don't fault our school for this, they hammer special tests and they hammer cluster signs. And I understand the importance of that in a differential diagnosis component. However, I would say the vast majority of therapists that are having less experience are doing an examination that is range of motion, muscle, muscle, or muscle testing, special tests, palpation. And they may not even get to the point of testing that patient at a level where they're going to be able to appropriately start their exercise progression. They're going to start them most likely too low. And then that goes back to our Strive Labs conversation where that's where some of our fall off is, is because those patients are going, well, I can do this with a, at my gym or with a trainer where I'm going to pay a fraction of the price. And then we have this fall off. And it takes this opportunity, too, to blame insurance companies, because I'm never upset blaming insurance companies for things, but <laughs> they have also put us into a bit of a difficult situation where we have the need to justify further therapy services. And this is where, again, the documentation becomes very important, because once that shoulder external impingement patient has full range of motion and good strength, it becomes a little challenging to talk about what are the actual needs for this patient and how can I continue to see them. Absolutely. That's where it is important to document what are the mechanical deficits, whether it be a mobility or a stability problem, you can still document them. How does this impact function? If you look at definitions of medical necessity, they take into account the cost of care and the cost of other potential interventions. And this is a huge piece of the picture. The cost of orthopedic care in our country is astronomical. It is second right now to cardiopulmonary issues only. And it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And there are a huge, there is a huge need out there for someone to step in and take advantage of not just helping people, but preventative care measures. And a big piece of that picture is understanding the movement, getting them back. And this doesn't take a long time. I'm not asking you to do your typical four to six weeks of therapy and then another four to six weeks of therapy on top of it. I'm asking you to look at your goals and say, all right, they're back to their activities, but are they moving efficiently? Like Dan said, return them to their optimal level of function, efficient function. So when they are doing their activities, are they taking stresses away the body is designed to, or at least as best as possible within the changes that happen over time. We expect those things. Or is their body still having significant compensatory movements where they're probably just gonna end up in the same place they were previously and right back at your doorstep again? Or unfortunately, potentially someone else's doorstep because they're upset, they're having the same issues they had previously and they're not fixed yet. Right, absolutely. So I think an important question then to ask also is, okay, so we've talked to you and said, you can't just special test, should still do them. Dan, what do you recommend for therapists out there to learn or to find their groove in looking at the full body and looking at full function for the individual? 
I know that's a huge question. Yeah, that's, <laughs> many answers. That, that, that's definitely loaded. You know, I, I think as I listened and uh, collaborated with, you know, fellow podcaster Andrew Walquist, you know, taking the time to more precisely look at that scapulothoracic motion and that thoracic spine motion, especially like you said, forward rounded postures, you know, that cell phone head and neck complex of, all right, how can I objectively utilize immovable objects in my clinic, such as a wall, and different foot positions to say, okay, this is how much functional thoracic extension they had on day one, and then after a variety of interventions, this is how much they have after session six, and after session 10, and after session 12, you know, especially if we're talking about an overhead throwing athlete, or little Mrs. Jones who has some thoracic kyphosis who can't reach into her cabinet because she can't, she can't move efficiently through that extension in her thoracic spine. And, and that's something that it takes practice and a certain level of vulnerability. So I would encourage our listeners to start with a patient who is relatively low complexity, has good buy-in, um, and is willing to say, you know what, I'm okay if you try something a little different with me. And like you said, not to still negate range of motion, manual muscle testing, special tests, if it's indicated, but take that extra five to 10 minutes and evaluate the mobility of the thoracic spine in a seated and or a standing position. Um, and, I, and I think what you'll find is a big rock component that is going to drastically change your effectiveness with treating individuals with shoulder pathology. Agreed completely. I mean, it's funny in school we talk about clearing the joint above and below, um, but unfortunately our clearing methods tend to be a very quick movement screen, right. even just like a active range of motion all planes, instead of actually saying, okay, well, when I step down, how is my foot, my knee, my hip, how is my force absorption impacting things, how is my posture, how is the mechanics? There's a lot more behind the picture. And this might not be something you can figure out all the eval. Right. Maybe the eval are still acutely aggravated and you need to calm it down. Or maybe you just need to get them get them initiated with the home program they can do and start getting their body to move again. And then a couple weeks in when you've made the changes you expect, relook at things and say, okay, what else is happening in this picture? And what else do I need to address to get them back to their optimal function? This might be the 10% cleanup. This might be the big rock that was the cause of everything. It could be anything across the spectrum, but we need to make sure we're looking at these pieces of the equation. Yeah, and I think another important component, and it's not really spoken about in, in a special test or even in an upper extremity res- return to sport program is how much can they weight bear through that shoulder joint or that elbow joint? And, and I think that's something that we as a profession need to put our heads together on and say, you know, we have a pretty decent return to sport testing for the lower extremity, um, you know, and I think there's definitely some tweaks that could happen to that program, but in the upper extremity, it's a, it's a push test with a medicine ball, one arm and double arm, but there's not anything weight-bearing to say, well, how long can you do a plank or a side plank or a plank with a, with a driver, and how successful can you be in maintaining appropriate positions and postures and things like that, that that is really important for overall functionality of that 
generally in unstable shoulder joint. So I want to circle back for a second as we're getting near closing up, but I, you had one word that I think was very important to discuss, and you said comfort. One thing that I always find is very challenging, and this was both for myself and for a number of young clinicians I see, or especially students that I take to come through, is what do I do with the patient that I can't reproduce their familiar pain? And what do I do with the patient who has activity limitations, but functionally they have good strength, they have good motion, there isn't a big, easy, objective deficit to see. And those are very challenging patients for those individuals to address. And of course, if you can't reproduce their pain, please make sure you're screening out red flags and other things. I want to make sure that is not ignored. <laughs> um, but going past that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Assuming all things are negative and we're safe to proceed with therapy, you need to be able to find the big rocks, find the movement dysfunctions, find the thing that can make the individual a more efficient mover and follow the way that the body was designed to, or at least within the deficits that we all have some sort of deviation within our best potential, and get them back to their optimal function. And personally, and I'm sure this will upset a couple people, but I think that reliance on special tests, reliance on clinical prediction rules, reliance on diagrams that have a box where it's yes or no, and you go A or B with it, it provides us with a comfort level, provides us with a safety net. It, it quite honestly makes our job easier which in my opinion cheapens our profession and cheapens our expertise, but it just relies and says, okay, cool, we, we, I can do this and I know I'm doing the right thing. Well, it is hard, like Dan said, to just put yourself out there and say, all right, I'm going to address this issue. I'm gonna address this big rock, this movement dysfunction I'm seeing and have to educate the patient on what I'm doing, what is the purpose. And quite frankly, there's some patients that don't get it and don't follow along. You can only do the best you can, but get outside your comfort zone. Challenge yourself to move beyond a general area of safety, challenge yourself to find what is dysfunctional within the patient and address it. And I think you'll be surprised at the successes you start seeing with your patients and the massive improvements you find. And then the challenging patients that have started elsewhere and failed other conservative measures, fail other therapy, you'll find them start knocking at your door and you'll find that you start having to solve those problems that are beyond your typical fit into a nice little tidy box that yeah, happens. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, I think this was a really <clears throat> valuable discussion um, that hopefully our listeners uh, can start that hamster wheel running. Um, I wanna give a couple shout outs here um, to our, our former classmate, Ashley, Menson slash Larkin. She hit us up on Facebook with, uh, you know, that she's listened to a couple podcasts and she's enjoyed it so far. And then our uh, other former colleague and one of my mentor or uh, residency colleagues, Erin Danielson from Advanced PT up in the Alaska world. Um, she was appreciative thus far and was asking some good questions. So just a couple shout outs to those people. And, um, you know, we look forward to hearing some feedback. Again, you can reach us at therapistsinmotion at spoonerpt.com.